This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. In this episode, I'm talking to James Harper, the author of Filter Stories, a critically acclaimed documentary podcast connecting our coffees to climate change, civil wars, and migration. Filter Stories helps coffee drinkers understand how their morning cup of coffee impacts tens of millions of people around the world. Hello, James. Thanks for coming. Welcome. Hi, Ina. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And just to start with, uh, please tell uh, our listeners a bit more about yourself, your podcast, and where does this interest in coffee come from? So thanks for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, my name is James Harper, um, and I create Filter Stories, a documentary podcast about coffee. I actually began my career working in finance for my sins, uh, but left that to uh, work in coffee because I'm much more passionate about coffee. <clears throat> about four years ago, I started this podcast, Filter Stories, because I really was really curious to understand uh, why, what is really behind our cups of coffee. You know, we are presented with certain images and kind of marketing by coffee roasteries, but I was really, cu- I mean, I knew there were deeper stories and, and there were ways in which my, the coffee that I was drinking in the morning was touching on these really big themes uh, that, you know, I was also changing as well. Like, for example, um, climate change or, um, you know, political instability. I mean, you know, we as consumers have so much power in terms of like, you know, what products we buy and how they affect, you know, countries and faraway places. So this podcast was a way of connecting the dots through human stories by finding people whose lives were affected in faraway places and connecting that to the drinks that, you know, we buy every morning. So that's Filter Stories. And then more recently, I created a six-part narrative series with the historian Professor Jonathan Morris called A History of Coffee, uh, which is what I think we're going to be talking about most today. Yes, exactly. So in this mini-series called A History of Coffee, you trace the development of the coffee industry from the 15th century to the present day. You show the connection with colonialism, slavery, industrialization, and the rise of consumer society. To give some context, could you briefly outline the most important pages and milestones in the history of coffee? I'd say there's a handful of key moments in the history of coffee where, as you say, it changes from uh, a crop growing wild in the forest to becoming a commodity, to becoming a colonial good, to becoming industrialized, and and to where it is today. Um, I'd say the first change, well, I mean, Coffee, you know, is native to Ethiopia, or Arabica coffee, which is the kind of coffee that you and I would drink in a cafe. It's native to Ethiopia and, and grew there wild in the forests for you know, thousands and thousands of years. It's taken to Yemen about 500 or so years ago, and it's there that it uh, is produced because, well, t- to be sold to foreign markets. And uh, it's produced under the control of the Ottomans in Yemen. It is the first time that coffee actually enters our supply chain. <laughs> which where you know money changes hands and coffee itself changes hands to to go from the grower to the consumer that's a, a major milestone the second major milestone is the moment the europeans get it and colonize it um so at, while the ottomans have control of coffee in yemen they were actually like drying up the coffee beans so it was impossible to plant the coffee anywhere else it had a, an effective monopoly on the coffee growing trade Along come the Europeans, especially the Dutch, and they kind of break the stranglehold of the Ottomans. And they start planting it in, you know, across their colonial countries, the colonized countries. And that, that, that includes, 
you know, if you find it cropping up in, in India, in Sri Lanka, in Java, across the Caribbean, and then, and then eventually you see it also in Latin America, and also it kind of makes its way back into Africa. And what the Europeans do is, so here's an interesting fact. We have records of what coffee, what Europeans were paying for coffee in the Netherlands at the time when Yemen was the major producer of coffee in the world, you know, controlled by the Ottomans. And coffee was 13 times the price of what it is today. So if you were to hypothetically have a cappuccino at that price, it's going to cost you $36 as opposed to $3. Um, so it's a very, so it's a luxurious good drank in, you know, in very fine surroundings on special occasions. Now, when the Europeans get it and colonize it and, and bring it to and, and plant it in the colonial assets, they do it, in, they do it with a lot of enslaved labor from West Africa. And the conditions are horrendous. And uh, I detail, or we detail a lot of them in the A History of Coffee episode, episode two. And essentially through the use of, in, of, of enslaved labor, coffee and suffering, a lot of human suffering, the price of coffee drops. And it, it, it drops to about five times what it is today. So it goes from 13 times to five times. And it's such a drop that if you, it goes from the refined establishments of, uh, of Europe, where you, you know, it's a, you know, it's a special occasion beverage to you, just, you buy a coffee on the street, you know, sold by a woman wearing an apron. And so through the colonization of coffee comes the, let's say the, the mass kind of uh, acceptance of, or drinking of this beverage. So that's another major point in coffee. But the coffee price has still has still lower to go. The coffee price is still five times what it is today. And it is when coffee gets industrialized is when it drops to much closer to basically where we are today. And a lot of that is driven by Brazil. Brazil is like the perfect place for growing coffee. If you now hypothetically, if one were to grow coffee, if you were to one were to imagine that you could grow coffee across in every part of Brazil, we're talking the potential of the entire European kind of continent of coffee trees. That's the potential this country has. So it's enormous for growing coffee. Obviously, only a, 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 a small proportion actually grows coffee. But in that small proportion, it's done very industrial with modern kind of modern, uh, let's say, fertilizers and modern day agricultural techniques. But the key differences are the fact that they use the railroads to transport the coffee. And so now coffee transportation gets a lot cheaper. And also in finding such fertile soil in which to plant vast swathes of land with coffee, they basically burnt down a lot of virgin forest in trying to do that. So there's an environmental cost to producing coffee and getting it so cheap. And who was drinking at this point is, well, more and more, basically the Americans. America is this exploding economy, huge. Population is, is increasing dramatically. And, you know, coffee becomes a part of the American dream in many ways. You find it everywhere. You find it in the Civil War in the North. The soldiers loved coffee. You can find more references to, to coffee than you can to, like, guns or war in, in the kind of memoirs of, of soldiers during the Civil War in America. And so coffee now has now become an industrialized good. It's roasted en masse in, in ginormous factories, what we call today roasteries, where essentially they, they in a single day... The amount of coffee they roast could feed tens and of thousands of people with coffee. And this is how we get coffee so cheap it becomes a good. And and this actually lays the foundation for this and the colonialization of coffee, lays the foundation for the current sustainability crisis that we are in, whereby most people who grow coffee, outside of a few select examples, struggle to earn enough money. They are stuck in a place where coffee really hasn't increased in price for a long time in real terms. However, Inputs have gone up. Everything else has gone up in price. Consumers pay a lot more for coffee. 
But you do wonder, but, and, but that's going to meet, you know, the increased costs in the developed markets for producing coffee. But it's not really trickling down to the producers, the farmers. And we are seeing, as I said, a real sustainability crisis in coffee on, on all levels in terms of environmental sustainability and also in terms of economic sustainability. Okay, so we've looked at the history of coffee and how its price went down over time. Now, what is the mechanism of price formation today? What are the key factors that influence it? So most coffee in the world is commodity coffee. And commodity coffee is grown on monocultures across the world. And the largest producer today is Brazil, followed by Vietnam, actually. That's a whole separate story. And essentially, these two countries, they can produce coffee at low coffee prices, what I would consider a low coffee price. Let's, let's just call it a dollar a pound. It's not easy to grow coffee at a dollar a pound green coffee, green before it's roasted, then it turns, then it turns brown. Yet, they, they, yet many of these producers can because they are extremely efficient and productive in growing coffee. These may not be the tastiest coffees you'll ever have, but they are produced at scale. So that's a situation. Wherever there is an economic, so as soon as that price goes above, let's say a dollar a pound, there are incentives for tens of thousands of coffee farmers, perhaps many more, across Brazil and Vietnam, who actually can financially do it to grow coffee at these low coffee prices, to just increase the area under cultivation. And with that increased supply, the, you know, supply and demand, boom, it goes down to one dollar a pound. The problem is everybody else <laughs> who's not in that highly efficient mechanized industrial kind of worlds of producing coffee. And they include millions of farmers in Africa. They include millions in other parts of Latin America and across, across Asia. And there it's a situation of smallholder farmers who probably inherited the coffee growing from their parents. And it's that these were kind of supply chains laid down in the systems of colonialism, whereby we grow the product over here and it goes into a supply chain. And as it moves up, the, as it moves you know, across the supply chain to consumers, every intermediary makes more and more money, it doubles, quadruples the price as they affect the product. And no one makes more money. That, and, and the people who make the most money are actually the roasters because they control the, and that's where a lot of consumers have an understanding and a relationship to coffee is with the roastery and the brand that they buy in a supermarket, for example. And that's where most money is also made. So what we have is what we have is a situation where there are millions of farmers around the world who um, grow coffee and are struggling because they're very small. They're not as productive as Brazilian or Vietnamese producers. And they, because they're not as productive, yeah, they, they, they're essentially loss making. And it's leading to all sorts of problems regionally, locally in their communities. And, and I can talk more about that too. But that is essentially how it works. And so, and the thing is, as soon as coffee price goes above a dollar a pound, the forces move down to push it down again from Brazil and Vietnam. And so China, which is a rising consumer of coffee, is going to be coming on tap very soon. You know, a lot of coffee is going to be flowing to China, but what's going to be happening, a lot of that is going to be met with increased Brazilian and Vietnamese production. Now, what is happening to coffee growing areas today? Are they continuing to increase? And how is this happening at the expense of forests? In areas where it's not financially profitable to grow coffee? No, actually coffee is on the, de the decline. An interesting example of that is El Salvador, which I can talk to. But to be clear, in Brazil and Vietnam, yes, where the economic incentives are aligned, it actually makes financial sense to grow more coffee. Yeah, more coffee does get produced there. And more coffee per hectare as well. To bear in mind, they get become more efficient at what they do, more mechanized uh, as well. 
But I mean, to give an example of El Salvador, that's like the opposite case. El Salvador used to be one of the top growing countries in the world back in the 70s. Its entire history was basically the history of coffee as well. And since the 70s, it's just been on a decline where today it's barely more than a rounding error in terms of its importance. And that is a, a number, I mean, there are many issues which have led, many reasons have led to the decline of such a prominent coffee growing region such as El Salvador, but low coffee prices is definitely one of them. You mentioned that uh, when Brazil started industrial production of coffee in the late 19th century, a lot of forests were cut down. Now, what impact does coffee production have on the environment today? The really sad stories that for, for as much as coffee is culpable, it is, is re responsible for so much, so many trees being cut down in Brazil. I mean, coffee is not even the most important. It's an important part of the Brazilian agricultural economy, but it's not that large in the grand scheme of things. So much of Brazil has been cut down to produce commodities that we consume, you know, across the board. I mean, soya is, is a classic example, right? And we, and even today we have rain, you know, we have leaders like Bolsonaro who, you know, are prioritizing the, the rainforest. And so it's, it's being slowly kind of converted into monocultures. So the crisis there is, um, it's really one of monoculture farming. And monoculture is a problem because it depletes soils. And it's also, it's a desert essentially for, for insects. You know, it's a very hostile environment to be an insect. And if there aren't insects, there aren't birds. And on top of that, there's also a carbon footprint element too. I mean, I think a natural forest is, is, is much be better. I need to get exact numbers for this, but I believe a natural forest is much better, a virgin forest at um, being a carbon sink than a coffee farm, an industrial coffee farm, because... You have to you have to ship in a lot of things like fertilizers, using tractors. What we have actually seen in the history of coffee is that in, for example, there was a big problem with full sun monoculture plantations. And it was actually a problem that American bird watchers spotted. They were like, well, where are the birds? They used to migrate up here coming up across through Central America, but we don't know where they are. And what, what they discovered was that places where the birds could kind of stop and recuperate and continue on their voyage, well, there was nothing, there's nothing to eat because the, there were so few places where there were insects because of all the heavy use of well, the modern culture deserts and the fertilizer and the pesticides. So th there is a silver lining to all of this, that coffee can actually be grown and is actually seen as one of the, if done right, as one of the best case examples of preserving natural forest, particularly secondary forest. So it's not primary, it's not like natural forest that's been there for a million years, but it's more forest, which, you know, it's still a forest, birds can live there, but it's kind of managed by humans and, and shade trees in and around coffee plantations are actually good in terms for birds because they have a place to live. Good for them, as long as there's not too much pesticides being thrown around. And it gives an economic incentive to not turn things into pure monocultures, which is, I think, the worst case scenario ecologically for, for, co for coffee or indeed any crop. So that's the silver lining. There are some challenges and, and that's how, okay, so, and shade grown coffee has become appreciated. Many farmers do it. It's a growing thing. It's not being done all the time. And indeed, many people still do monoculture because that's where the money is. It's actually easier to make money in monoculture in many cases. So yeah, there's potential there. And, and, and I guess maybe part of the solution is to continue to drive the message to consumers around the importance of, of shade-grown coffee. Uh, let's go back to the price of coffee and this race to the bottom, something you talk about a lot in your podcast. What is the solution? What can be done to increase the price of coffee and contribute to fair trade? The answer to, the, to this question often changes by the day for me because it's an evolving picture. It's an evolving piece. The answer I would have given last year is very different as, as we as an industry learn a lot more and even I personally learn so much more. But it's, I wouldn't say it's fully resolved by no means. I think it's, it's, it's a question of shades of gray. 
in terms of solutions. I think a lot of it is tied to the consumer to some degree. If we just take the consumer in, in terms of changing consumer preferences, what can a consumer do? Because essentially, if they want to buy coffee, which is done ecologically and or even better at a price which rewards farmers to do, for example, shade-grown coffee, because it's less productive, they need to be paid more to because they're not producing as much as, for example, in monocultures. What can consumers do? So it's shades of gray here. It's about, to, to begin with, it's like you have your certifications, they're certainly better than commodity coffee. The certifications have a lot of challenges, which I can talk to. And they were, it's a very, the way I, my, my take on the, the, the certification story, it was a very noble pursuit, which did make some seriously good impacts in many places, uh, especially in terms of raising awareness, but it's by no means a silver bullet. And its problems are now being laid, about now being shown in many places. I feel like it's reaching the limits of, in the way it was set up in terms of actually addressing the problem of, of low coffee prices for farmers. Then you have the next stage along, which is, um, this notion of specialty coffee for a long time, even 10 years ago, specialty coffee was, was seen as like, ah, it's amazing. If we just pay more prices for higher quality coffee, that's that's win, 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 right? Win for the consumer, better tasting cup of coffee, win for the farmer, more money. The problem is, as we learn more about this, how specialty coffee actually works for farmers, it costs a lot more money to produce high quality coffee. And also the specialty coffee market, although it is growing and growing quite quickly in many places, it, it's by no means, it's still a, a blip on the scale of coffee and, and how much we need to change. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a vast, the amount of coffee being consumed around the world is just mind-blowingly vast. And especially coffee is, is a pretty, it's an important but quite small part of it all. So will it ever get to the stage where we're kind of displacing commodity coffee with specialty? I don't think so. I mean, maybe one day, hopefully, but heaven knows how long that's gonna take. And then within that, if you wanna go really to the cutting edge, the cutting edge today in terms of help giving farmers an incentive to stay in the coffee producing kind of industry, we have a number of initiatives in the specialty coffee world, which relate to essentially grocers amongst themselves knowing, hey, we need to benchmark to higher prices. We gotta pay a lot more on average. And we are now gonna tell each other what we're paying. We're gonna be transparent about this so that now as an industry, we're all paying higher prices for high quality coffees. Good start. Second step, okay, make sure the farmer actually gets, you know, the money because there are many, because farmers only receive a fraction of, you know, the, the pennies sometimes on, you know, your $3 cappuccino. Um, and then once you have that understanding, it's also about understanding how much should, can a farmer earn? Indeed, what is enough to continue to motivate a farmer to produce coffee and to give it to their generation? What's interesting for their sons and daughters in particular? And that's a much more difficult question. And we're now in the middle of doing a living income assessments to understand how much, for example, do rural communities in Colombia need to, to grow coffee and to continue growing coffee profitably? And is that enough to interest their children? That's the real cutting edge stuff. And, it's, and, that, and that accounts for like a fraction of a fraction of global coffee supply. What we have, as far as a consumer is concerned, they can choose to purchase at, you know, anything that's not commodity is better than commodity. And if that means it is a certified coffee, Great. If it's specialty coffee, yeah, okay, depends. If it's a coffee where we know it, where it's, it's, it's full traceability and transparency, right down to the farmer, we know what the farmer's getting paid, and we know how that's relevant to their cost of living, even better, great. But it's very slow, and there's a lot of work that's taking place um, to get there. And how can we raise awareness about how the coffee industry works? I assume most people never think about where their coffee comes from, who grows it, and how these coffee growers live. There's a cynical side part of me which feels like people will, will wake up to it when they're like, why is my coffee not as interesting as it used to be? And why do I need to pay a lot more money to get a really nice cup of coffee? When it starts hitting people's wallets, they might wake up. But I will also tip my hat off to many certifications have done a great job in raising awareness that there's a coffee. And that's that's been going since the 90s. <laughs> you know, this is not a new problem. And 
you have even many roasters who also, you know, in their marketing, for example, a coffee subscription service in the UK recently put on the tube and the double-decker buses across London, like, you know, coffee is in crisis. Good. Okay. But also it begs more questions too, because you can say something's in crisis, but what are you going to do about it? And are you suggesting that you're going to solve it single-handedly? It's, it's very nuanced, but essentially yeah, it's about awareness raising. And I'm very hopeful because as the specialty coffee industry expands, I, I see it from my side. I, I produce coffee documentaries and I see that the interest in my work, if I, what I was doing four years ago, when I first started making coffee documentaries in audio, people were like, that's a really niche thing to do. Why would you be, do, why would you be doing that? And now people are like, that's really smart. We need more of this because people have really, especially since the pandemic, really kind of embraced coffee and now starting to understand the, the many of the sustainability challenges that are kind of weighing our industry down. What about instant coffee? Obviously, for its production, lower quality coffee beans are used, which means that it doesn't contribute to fair trade and fair prices at all. Instant coffee accounts for most coffee consumed in the world. And especially the value of instant coffee is in developing markets where people, are kind of, because it's so cheap, even in the UK today, I need to double check these figures, but a lot of coffee consumed is still instant. It used to be, I think, majority instant, but it has slowly shifted. But that's as a developed economy like the United Kingdom. The, a big shift is, for example, in, in India and in China, where you have, we literally have billions of people who are slowly embracing coffee, seeing it as part of a kind of, uh, of a lifestyle choice. The gateway to coffee is oftentimes instant because of its affordability. So it's big. It's only going to get bigger, I feel. Uh, my personal take on this, the, the fundamental problem of instant is that it's commodity coffee. But then you get into that, into the really ethically fraught conversation around if people can't afford uh, expensive coffee, should they be denied coffee at all? I think here we need to talk about the social responsibility of coffee producers. They have to understand that their business affects millions of people. I agree. I have maintained for a long time that the people who make the most money in the coffee supply chain, who are the roasters, the people who own the brands, who have that interface with consumers, they have the biggest responsibility to make their supply chains as sustainable as possible. We shouldn't be asking consumers to make sustainability choices. That's, it's, that's a huge demand on them. And actually, I think the solution is... Yeah, we need to raise awareness amongst consumers. And, and you know, part of my show is doing that, of course. Um, this conversation, to some extent, is. But I think it's also about changing laws in countries. So if you are going to sell something to a consumer, it needs to meet certain baseline sustainability standards. I, I would love to live in a world like that. It might mean that coffee gets more expensive. But okay, I think that's a worthwhile trade-off, personally. In your podcast, you explore the past and present of the world of coffee through people's personal stories. Tell me about one or maybe two that particularly touched you. God, so many come to mind. <laughs> okay, so I was in Nicaragua a few years ago and I did a story about a girl who lives on a coffee farm. She was the uh, daughter of a uh, coffee farm worker. He worked on a you know, in a Nicaraguan, Nicaraguan farm. The mother worked at home until, you know, but she'd pick coffee seasonally. So I guess she was involved in the supply chain in that way too. And at the time when I met her, she told me like her, her aspirations were to become an English teacher. And sounded like music to my ears. And it was also an exploration, a very kind of cold, hard look at the kind of just the barriers really in, in, in the way of her becoming 
an English teacher. And a lot of it was based on the road she would have to walk down to get to school. A road which was actually quite dangerous. And there had been instances of assault on that road. Drunken men, especially. I, I even saw a drunken man pass out on the road when I was going, you know, heading towards the farm. It's And even an instance where someone had they'd even been chased recently down the road. And so her journey to try to secure a good education to then become an English teacher, plus the cost as well of even if she makes it out of you know school and gets into university, the costs that keep building up and her parents are only earning three, four, five dollars a day. So that touched me. And then, but what's interesting too is that I went back to see Sophia a year or so later and the story had changed qu- quite in, in many ways and it became a much deep, much more, I think, complex story. Uh, because what had happened is the coffee farm that she worked on essentially was one of these coffee farms which was basically would tell their customers, hey, buy our coffee because we support this school. And what had happened is that there'd been a, there'd been a fracturing and essentially the school got kicked out and the coffee farm took over the running of the school. And from the evidence that I gathered, the educational outcomes for the kids were much worse. But the marketing potential for the farm was much higher. And the more I explored the story, then also became an exploration of the, just, I guess, the perils of being someone with my background, um, trying to understand the, the nuances uh, of a story and, and in, the, in the ways in which it was being affected. And for example, when I, asked, when I asked Sophia, what do you want to be when you grow up? She said, an English teacher. I'm sure she was just telling me what I wanted to hear. <laughs> and this was something that I explored in this episode, you know, and in fact, I was just really part of the problem. Everybody in the supply chain is just trying to tell any of everybody else who buys or wants something for somebody else what they want to hear. And so it became actually more of a kind of crisis of what is truth, I guess, in these circumstances and how can we be very mindful? It's like, it's a bit like Schrodinger's cat or when you look at like, you know, particle physics, you know, the act, merely the act of observing is going to change the outcome. And in conclusion, a question I ask all my guests. This podcast is called Being Modern, Being Human. What does being modern and being human mean to you? Being modern and being human. I think it means being aware of the (laughs) impact of late-stage capitalism on our world. It's about understanding that how we produce, what we produce, how we consume, and ultimately what its effects are, and particularly the hidden effects. What are those hidden effects? And I'd say it's being modern because it's showing an awareness. This is not something that we've particularly cared about in the past as human beings and societies, but we should, we are caring about now. So that's a modern change. But also it's about being human and it's about recognizing all humans who live on this earth, and indeed all creatures, and placing them in the narrative, placing them in our, in our focus, and understanding what's the impact on everybody, as opposed to just us and what the story we're trying to tell for ourselves. That's a great answer, James. So let's be aware and drink coffee responsibly. Thank you so much for this conversation. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it and help other people discover it is to leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. 
The next episode will come out in two weeks. In the meantime, feel free to drop me a line to share your thoughts and ideas or suggest a guest speaker you would like to hear on this podcast in the future.